what are the skills do you need? What does every team need? You know, what is your role? And once you figure that out, you're not going to waste your time with certain things in the gym, you know, in the summer. Work on what is going to make you successful in the game. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome international professional basketball player, Sam Decker. Sam is here today to discuss learning the European game, running efficient practices, reading screens, handling conflict, and gets on the hot seat for overrated or underrated. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube. And subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Sam Decker. I want to start with a, actually an interesting post that you wrote a few months back on your blog about your experience coming to Europe um, from the NBA. And I thought it was really well written, a great point of view about that transition process, you know, going from the NBA to Europe, and then you talking about becoming more comfortable in your second year in the European game. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and and sort of what led you to write that post? Yeah, well, I think you always hear about guys going overseas and making that adjustment, but you never understand really what it is until you're in it yourself. And now me being in my second year, um, there's a lot that I've had to change or had to acclimate to uh, with the style of style of play over here. And it took me uh, some time, you know, in my first year in Russia uh, with Lokomotiv Kuban, I'd have great games and I'd have games where I disappear and things wouldn't come my way. And I had to understand how to play within the way that the European style is played. And this year, uh, like I wrote in that blog post, you know, I'm just so much more comfortable in acclimating and waiting for the game to come to me and finding ways to attack and score and be, you know, part of the offense. And uh, it takes some time because there's new rules, there's new flow, spacing's different, uh, different pace. So uh, I think I wrote a line, uh, you know, it's almost like a foreign language, um, like Portuguese and Spanish sounds similar to the random listener, but once you get into it, it's completely different. And um, that's kind of like NBA to EuroLeague competition. It may look the same to the average viewer, but once you're in it, it's a completely different game. You mentioned it, kind of the adjustments between the NBA and the European game. If we can kind of hone in on that, what were some of the biggest ones that stood out to you in the game? And yeah, what were the differences? I think one obvious rule, um, traveling, is one that's tough, yeah. uh, especially a guy like me that you know, my closeout attacks is a big staple of my game. You know, catch and goes, catch and goes, catch and goes. NBA, you can catch it and almost take that first step, throw it in front of you, get to the cup, right? Or in transition, you can catch it, kind of throw it ahead of you, run it down, get it. Over here, you got to throw that ball down quick, get the ball down before your feet move, and um, learn those little, those little in-between moves. And I'm still getting called for it once in a while. Uh, like the, the other night, I had a fake rip baseline, and I threw it back the other way. A move that, in my mind, was completely legal. I had a dunk on it, and when I'm dunking ball, I hear the whistle, and uh, it's a travel. So that little ones like that um, are very frustrating for me and a lot of Americans over here because they're very picky on it. And another rule that I struggled with for the first year, I would say, year plus even, defensively, uh, not having to cleanse myself out of the lane. You know, staying put in the lane because I would, I would step out, and before I know it, there'd be a guy rolling or a guy cutting. And, you know, I'm supposed to be help side, but I'm thinking in my head, I got to cleanse myself, get out in the three seconds of the lane. And um, I, I've got that down now, but 
my first year here, there'd be once every couple of weeks where I would get out of the lane and get back in. And before you know it, they're having a layup at the rim. So uh, those are, those are two ones that come to mind right away. Looking at the coaching perspective, how is the coaching different in the NBA compared to in Europe? The NBA is a players run league. Um, it's player first player empowerment, you know, stars have the say, you know, you get yelled at in the NBA. I'm not saying you don't, you, you, you still get, you know, they hold you accountable, you know, they get on you, but there's more, there's more communication. You can tell the player has that, that, that power. And, um, there's not as much, you know, short leashes or, you know, things of that nature. And over here, it's more, you know, these, these coaches are, putting the whole organization on their shoulders, all that, that pressure and that pride, they have to answer for that. When I was in, in Russia last year, we had three head coaches. We had uh, two firings, you know, during the season. And, you know, you can tell the coaches feel that, you know, that's that, that cutthroat, you know, I got to win this, these, win every game, win every game, win every game. Where in the NBA, you lose three in a row, you know, after the game, all right, guys, let's go. Let's keep going. Um, stay together. Come on. Cause they know there's 82 games here. There's 40, 50, 55 games. There's sponsorships on the line. There's jobs on the line. You can tell these coaches feel that. So, you know, coaches can pull you with after 30 seconds on the court. You know, I know there's, there's a lot of coaches that are, you know, you see some clips online that, you know, during huddles are breaking, you know, clipboards. They're, they're screaming at guys. They're, you know, they're, they're red in the face in every situation. They're getting ejected. It's a completely different dynamic. Um, you're, you're sometimes you're not used to that and, you know, they, they, they try to get you, you know, whipped in the shape pretty quick. That being said, you know, the coaching staff here and yeah, they can be hard on you on the court, but you know, tremendous people off the court and all of them are, you know, they are, it's funny, they can flip that switch, but all of them care so much for their players and for the club. Um, so that's, that's pretty unique. And they take pride. They like really, really take pride in every single day, uh, every practice. So, um, you know, it took, it was definitely an adjustment just the way you're, the communication is much different. They're so prideful. A lot of Americans struggle with it. And, you know, I'm not going to say I haven't struggled with it at times. It, it sucks sometimes. But you've got to understand none of it's personal. It's, it's all they're feeling that pressure from so many angles. And, uh, you know, they want to be prideful for their country and for their team and, and for their families. But when coaches are going ballistic and yelling, you know, I think it's interesting to hear your perspective. But how do you not tune them out? Is there a limit for you or that coaches can learn from like, you know, where there's a balance between yelling to get results and yelling to where it's you're losing the team? That's the thing that's really tough for Americans. And I think everyone, you know, in America, you lose that team quick. You know, just for example, uh, I love the guy, but Coach Beeline at Michigan, he wasn't able to communicate with those players in Cleveland the way that he could in Ann Arbor. Right. He lost that locker room quick. And, you know, you saw what happened and um, it, it, it's an adjustment for not just overseas. You saw it was, it took an adjustment over there. You know, you have to be able to communicate with these guys in the NBA because you know, you got a guy making 35 million coaches making 2 million, you know, who's in charge here. You know, it, it's one of those types of things that some of the guys, you know, they have that pride, they earn that money, they've brought in money for the organization so it's, it's, it's a balance and that balance is worked on all year. And the teams that can figure that out are those teams that are in the playoffs at the end of the year, right? Over here. Yeah. It's, you don't really lose the team, but you see a lot of times, a lot of Americans will come over here and it's, you know, they mutually part ways because sometimes these guys, they tune it out for a while and then they just can't anymore. And they feel like every shot they take, they're getting scolded or, uh, they're looking over at the bench, wondering what's going on. Um, did I make that play correctly? Whatever. So it's really about coming in with a good attitude and an open mind. That's what's helped me is in practice, don't say a word. Be cool off the court to everybody because, you know, if you have, you know, your team captains and stuff grumbling about you as a new guy, it's not going to be well, go well for you. So um, that's kind of been my thing is, you know, just be a good guy off the court and then on the court, not talk back to now, you know, coach and I have a good relationship. So in the game, if I need to get my point across, he trusts me enough because I've built up enough, you know, respect. You know, I'm not challenging him every time. You know, like, for example, we had a game yesterday. You know, me and coach, like, I disagreed with something he said, and he let me express that, and we moved on. Some guys, they try to do it every single time, and that's where you lose the team. That's where you lose the trust, and that's when 
guys don't make it, you know, a whole year. Sam, remembering back to your days at Wisconsin, can you compare dealing with a coach that's, you know, getting on you in practice as a young guy as opposed to now in your, you know, mid to late twenties and a professional, how that affects you differently if it does? Oh yeah. It affected me pretty, pretty tough. Um, especially my first year, first two years in Madison, you know, it's cause coach Ryan, it's, it's a whole new level, you know, coming from, I played at a, a high school that my graduating class had 49 kids, right. To go from there playing division five in Wisconsin to, you know, a team that's competing for a big 10 title every year, you know, a school of 45,000, it's a different type of pressure. Right. And it's a different level of play. And, you know, so that was one thing. And then the coach's expectations when you get there, it's a lot. And it wasn't just me, you know, coaches, you know, he's hard on everyone, but he, you know, he expects a lot and he wanted to get that, um, that point across to, you know, you're a freshman. Okay. Sam's a five-star freshman. He's coming in, he's got to help us. So how can I get him in our system? How can I get him integrated and ready? You know, so when, you know, you're playing in Bloomington or playing in East Lansing, that he's not going to be phased by a crowd, not going to be phased by, you know, this or that. So that was kind of coach's project with me. Um, there was times I didn't handle it well, times where I was, I would check myself out kind of mentally during a practice or, you know, there's probably you know, a handful of games over my three years at Wisconsin where maybe mentally I, I wasn't strong enough and I didn't, you know, reach my potential that night. Right. Uh, but all that set me up for big moments at school and down the line. And me and Coach Ryan have a phenomenal relationship. We still talk. Even when I was at school, people would always say to me, why is Bo so mean to Sam? Da, da, da. He wasn't mean to me. Uh, me and him have always had a great relationship since my first year on campus. I think one thing people don't understand is people saw Coach Ryan yelling at me a lot, but he also let me talk back to him. That was like the one unique thing of our relationship. He loved when I barked back at him because it means that he's lit that fire in me. But he wanted me to show that I'm, I'm here. And he loved that. And sometimes he'd get on me and I'd yell back and I would see him walking away just chuckling. And he's like, yes, I got him. I got him. So, um, you know, that was part of our relationship. It went both ways and it was really fun. And uh, once we really figured it out, good things happened that that trust just built higher and higher and higher. And you saw with our level of play. So now being a pro, Mm -hmm. a coach getting on you in a certain way, does that, is it successful in motivating you? I guess is the question. Like, does it still work for you? Like, do you need that sometimes as a player for someone to kind of ride you to push you to another level? Sometimes, um, definitely, definitely sometimes, uh, just kind of, yeah, get, get that spark going, especially probably defense on the defensive end. You know, I, I feel like that's when it kind of lights me up the most is if I hear something that I'm like, oh, that pissing me off, you know, you know, I don't agree with it, whatever. I'm not ratcheting it up on the offensive end. It's when I, that's when I really dig in defensively and be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get this ball back. I'm going to block the shot. You know, I'm going to grab every rebound I see just because I'm mad. You know, not mad at coach, but just like I want to show him I'm, I am working hard or I am trying to do my job. You know, here I understand none of that's personal. You know, they, you know, they love me here. You know, I'm, I'm a big part of this team. And I understand that for us to be successful, I have to play you know, some of my best basketball. I got to, you know, help the team in many facets. So I don't take that personally. Um, They expect a lot out of me and that's, that's cool. You know, that's a big deal. That's the same thing in Wisconsin. They expected a lot out of me. So they're going to get on me and, you know, you have to take pride in that and uh, not shy away from it. And that's been a, that's been a great thing. And um, like I said, the communication here has been really, really good. You know, we touched on it even in training camp. He's like, Sam, I'm going to be on you because we need you to do a lot of different things. And, you know, that's, as a player, that's all you want to hear from a coach. You know, it's like, we want a lot out of you and, you know, we're going to be hard on you. So take that seriously. So, you know, all right, I go to the gym every day expecting that. And that's, you know, I'd rather have him do that than act like I don't exist. And, you know, act like, you know, if I make a mistake, it doesn't matter because it does matter. And they, they want me to be successful and they want this team to be successful. So, uh, no, it doesn't bother me at all here. And um, I think Coach Ryan really, really prepped me for that. If we can kind of go to individual improvement, how do you go about adding skill to, to add value to your game? So, you know, obviously you want to keep continuing to do what you do well and improve upon it. But, you know, especially at the professional level, if you can continue to add and grow, you know, you're going to obviously add more income. 
So how do you go about weeding out what that can really benefit your game and what could be just fluff that really isn't going to be a skill you need? Exactly. That's the biggest part right there. What are the skills you need? What does every team need? You know, what is your role? And once you figure that out, you're not going to waste your time with certain things in the gym, you know, in the summer. Work on what is going to make you successful in the game. You know, a lot of times you see guys over here in Europe, especially point guards, averaging, you know, 20, 25 points a game and you know, on big EuroLeague clubs. And a lot of times people are like, why is player X not on NBA roster, right? But you got to understand is most teams in the NBA already have their scores, right? Teams have their scores. It's how can you then find a niche, you know, on each roster to be unique and stand out, right? So like the Blazers aren't looking for a scoring one or two, right? They have Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum. So how can you, you know, open their eyes to something, right? And how can you be, and that's why you see guys that are, you know, three and D is so big right now. So if you can be a wing that can shoot threes and defend, you know, a Paul George or hold Kawhi to 18 points instead of 27 points, right? You know, there's going to be a job for you. So, you know, for me personally, you know, the things that come naturally are, you know, open court game, run on the floor, you know, communication, cutting off the ball, uh, getting to the rim. Things that haven't been natural for me as a pro have been, you know, shooting 38 plus percent from three. You know, I've had a 34, I've had 32, I've had like a 20. You know, I've had a very bad year shooting. So what am I going to work on? You know, I'm not going to only work on the things that are easy for me. Um, I'm going to work on, you know, corner threes. I'm going to work on transition threes. I'm going to work on, you know, pick and pop threes, um, reading pick and pop, you know, decisions, things that I know in the NBA are going to get me a job and over here, uh, get me, you know, continue a job and, and grow my income, like you said, and grow my uh, credentials. So, yeah, I think as a player and as coaches, it's important to work on things that are going to impact your game. You know, I'm not going in the summer working on my, you know, coming off of a ball screen, splitting, hezzy step back, you know, I may take one of those a month, right? So, <laughs> or a late shot clock. So I think it's really important to work on things that are going to benefit the team in a game. You know, I think as a pro, you understand that. And, the, you know, you can fit that role. So, you know, when it gets to the game, the team has trust in you that you can knock those threes down or get stops or uh, even just run the floor in space well. The next part then is, now, from the coaching perspective, what has helped you transfer these skills from, yeah, the practice gym to the, the floor and actual five on five and you're doing it in a game? Yeah. Well, I mean, confidence comes from reps, right? So, you know, one thing, you know, my worst shooting year was in L.A. with the Clippers. And, you know, coincidentally, my attempts were the lowest of my career, right? So, you know, when I'm in, when I'm in Houston in McDantoni's offense, you know, what is that? Run and gun. We're going to shoot threes, shoot threes, and shoot threes. Um, so that system was so easy for me because I could cut and James Harden would find me or James is going to get doubled and I'm going to have to try to hit a knock on three. And I think I hit 80-something threes that year, right? So the confidence in shooting or, or anything really comes from those reps, and, and, and went from that to getting in a game and maybe taking a three or if I'm lucky, two. And if I miss that first one, I'm putting pressure on myself. So after that tough year, I had to totally rewire my brain and even go into workouts with my dad or with my trainer and be like, all right, we're going to shoot not many shots, but I have to come in and, you know, I got to make two out of three for this drill. And then we're going to take a little break and work on something else. And then I have to make five out of seven, you know, just things like that, just to, you know, get that confidence. If I only get one or two shots, I have to make at least one. Right. And that helped me a ton, you know, when I was, especially when I was in Cleveland and DC. Um, and then this year, especially just getting, trying to get more reps in the game. And now I'm up to almost shooting five threes a game, which has been huge for me. And I'm shooting about 50% uh, so far from three. And, uh, it's crazy how much confidence you get just from reps, in-game reps, and just being on the court and letting it fly and not being shy of, of misses. And that's, that's so huge. Um, even as a pro, I was afraid of misses. So now you have to get that out of your head. Don't be afraid to miss. One cool story about that is Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, when they go into games, their mindset to each other is they each want to get 15 threes up a game, right? 
So they say if we start over eight, we still have seven shots in there, right? To, you know, all we have to do is make five of them to shoot 34% for that night. So, you know, that's a cool mindset for them. They're like, we can miss our first six and we still hit, you know, five of our next 11. We're, we're, we're fine. It's a good game, right? Yeah. So that's such a cool mindset, you know, to have. And for me, that's what it kind of is this year. I want to get five to eight up. And if I miss my first three, you know, law of means, I'm going to get back to it. So uh, that's helped me a ton. And just trying to retool your mind just to you know, have that confidence in the court when, once you step out there and try to help your team. You, you mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast about working on, you know, reading a screen, re- reading the pick and pop, and slips, things like that. Can you talk about how you, how you actually work on reading those things? Drills or film or mixture? How are you getting better at that decision-making process? A lot of it's natural. I, I've seen that a lot with guys. Either you kind of have it or you don't. You can, you can practice it for sure. One thing that has helped me, you know, my dad being a, a coach my whole life, he was a high school coach and, you know, watching film with him at like six years old, just like sitting in the basement with him, not knowing what I'm watching, but seeing little things like that. And, and when I was little, I played point guard a lot. Um, my freshman year of high school, I was only six one, six two, So I was a natural point guard. Um, so being able to slow the game down and see things from a different, you know, seeing things as a guard in high school has helped me now as a wing and a forward because I now can see what a point guard's looking at or what he's going through when he's getting hard hedged, right? Or, you know, if that, if someone's doubling, how, when, when can I time my cuts? And, you know, I think one thing that's come really naturally and it came naturally to me at Wisconsin was the cutting. We had such a cut heavy offense that now in my professional career, I've been able to read that so easily, right? And um, just timing my cuts. And that's why I worked well with guys like Lou Williams or James Harden, guys that demanded a lot of pressure defensively then knowing when they're going to get in trouble, when I can cut for them, get an easy layup. And those little things make the game, you know, you're stealing six, seven, eight points a game, just doing little things like that and reading it. So a lot of it is natural and just paying attention and kind of putting your, your mind in the point guard's mind or your shooting guard's mind and uh, where you can go from there. And, you know, Europe still uses, you know, low post play. So seeing when a, a double's coming on your big and being able to cut in that spot where that guy came from, you can practice that stuff, but a lot of it is learning the game and just reading it and slowing the game down. And um, you can work on, you know, cut timing, this and that, but the only way you're really going to excel and get better at it is being on the court in a game and, um, and learning that on the fly. Looking at uh, a closeout situation, when someone's closing out on you, can you kind of speak through, I'd like to hear your mindset of like, what's kind of, I don't know if it, progression is the right word, but yeah. As you're coming the ball and you're going to close out, what's, what is going through your mind? Well, first, you, you, know, you, want, a good, you want a good pass first, right? You, you want to be able to catch it in a, in a position where you can kind of get to that triple threat. You know, they talk about that a lot. You, know, uh, you got to be able to read it. And for me, uh, one thing that was easy for me in the NBA was teams are going to short close me because they want to say, you know, show, Decker's got to show that he can hit a shot tonight, Right. So they're going to close three, four feet short of me. If I hit my first one or two, then they're going to come tighter on me. But then if I hit my first, first one or two, I'm like, okay, I, this can be an easy night because, you know, they're going to now run at me and I can just catch and go, right, and, and get it down quick. So um, for me, I've always had the advantage of kind of knowing how the defense is going to play me, right? But other than that, it's really just reading – your defender's feet. You know, if he's a slow-footed guy, like, you know, if, I, if I'm playing at the four and, you know, a team's putting a big on me, I know I can attack that top foot. You know, I, I, I have quick feet. You know, I'm a good ball handler. So I know I, I can read his feet pretty easily, get downhill, get to my right hand usually. But other than that, you have to be able to prove that you can shoot. And that helps your closeout game or, you know, closeout attack game so much. Always be a threat to shoot. That's kind of the, even if you're not shooting well, that's the first and foremost thing. Because there's nothing more undefeated in the game than a good jump shot. So if I'm catching it and the team is worried about me shooting, I can get to the paint at any, at any time. And that's where, you know, I wish I shot better my first, you know, few years. Is The game could have been much easier and I could have utilized a lot more. Um, but that's why I'm still young and I'm still working on it and, yeah. and getting there. But, um, yeah, you got to be able to prove you can shoot because then you can attack that top foot and, um, and get downhill. The next level after you attack the closeout, 
you know, teams in Europe are so good, and the NBA as well, but so good at attacking the closeout and then, you know, whipping the ball a skip to the extra pass or find the open man. What are ways that right now the team you're with and teams in the past you've been on have taught that progression or that read after you attack and where the ball should go next? Yeah, they work that a lot in the NBA, a ton in the NBA, because the traditional closeout in the NBA is running off the line, right? So guys shoot the ball so well that you want to run them off the line and make them get downhill, funnel them to your shot blockers. So most practices, you have drills where, you know, you're catching on the wing or in the corner. You know, you have a guy running at you, running you off the line. So you're getting downhill. Now you have to read the big coming over. And then there's usually a two for one on the other side. So you'll have a guy corner, guy wing, defender splitting the difference, right? So you have to read within a split second how that guy is shading. You know, so if you're getting downhill, you have to make that decision. If you want to hit, you know, that guy in the wing, you know, that, that defender has to go to the ball and you got to hope that that X isn't getting there quick to the corner swing, swing shot. Right. So that's a huge drill they do in the NBA every day, you know, get to the baseline, have your guy slide corner, hit the corner, swing to the top shot. And you know, those reps just over and over and over and over and over, you know, as a rookie, I was, kind of slow on it. You know, why, why am I sliding in the corner? Um, you know, why do I have to make this extra pass, you know, so quick? And then once you just rep it out so much, and then you can see how easy it is once you get in the game, you know, get that downhill attack, swing, 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 you know, force multiple scrambles. It just makes the game so easy for the offense and so hard for the defense. Um, so if you're making crisp on-time passes uh, to force scrambles like that, you know, you can, you can do a lot of good offensively and be very, very, very efficient. So NBA teams have been, you know, that's like one of the main things they practice um, and try to, you know, especially with the young guys, just grill this into them. Um, and in Europe, you know, the extra pass is so used. Look at a guy like Ginobili when he came over here. He's the king of the extra pass. Um, that unselfish style of play is huge here. And they don't even care if you miss the shot. If you have like two extra passes in a possession, the coaches are happy um, so, you know, you kind of just get used to that, that unselfish play, just like catch, hit, catch, hit, you know, so if teams like in the NBA, you think about how much they like it over here, you know, that the pride in that the little nuances over here is so much more. Um, so once you learn that and get easy looks, you know, you become really tough to stop. Sam, one more, I guess, sort of tactical thing we wanted to get into is scouting another team, scouting reports, film, you know, going into a game plan and how much information you need, how much is too much, you know, how free your mind wants to be, all that sort of stuff. Because as coaches, we're all nervous wrecks all the time and want to make sure we stuff as much information possible. But then there's obviously a certain point where you guys need to play and it's not not working. So uh, from your point of view, what things do you need going into a game against an opponent that are, you know, the most useful? Uh, It's different at every level, really is. In college, it was more of, uh, you know, what's, what's kind of the, their style? What's their system? You know, you got to know a few go-to sets, obviously, but I feel like, you know, playbooks in college are pretty extensive. Um, you know, they can always throw something new out there. When you get to the NBA level, it's kind of individual-based, you know? So for me, you know, before a game, I'm watching some of the starting, you know, forward, you know, starting three or four. Uh, but mostly, you know, who are their se- who's the second unit three and four? And um, also for me, the one, you know, because I'm, I'm always switching. So for me individually, you know, I got to know, okay, what's Kemba? When, if, if I'm switching on Kemba, what's his go-to? You know, he, he's got a great hezzy, you know, so sit on that hezzy, you know, whatever. Or, you know, KD likes to, you know, KD plays six minutes with the second unit. So I'm, that's going to be my matchup. What do I know that he likes to get to? Well, he likes his hezzy cross, whatever. So in the NBA, it's more you got to know individually how they're going to try to break you down, whatever. You know, you got to know some of their sets. You know, guys like Paul George who love to come off curls or, you know, Iverson screens to get into something. But, you know, in college, it's, it's much more what is their scheme overall, you know, because it's going to be the same kind of first and second unit, you know, in college. So there is a point where it gets to be overkill because you don't want your guys sitting in a chair for 22 hours watching film because they're going to drift off. And they're not going to, you know, retain it. So I think it's, you got to find that balance. Um, and, you know, especially like walk through, you know, what are the, what, what are they going to 75, 80% of the time? Let's walk through those four sets. Let's get those in those guys' brains and know how they're going to be attacked. 
Uh, but other than that, it comes down to just playing. And I think as a coach, you know, if I were ever to be a coach, I would try to stress home to my team. Let's dictate the style of play. Let's play our game and not be overly worried about stopping their style. Right. Because if you're, if you're too worried about the other team, you're going to forget to do your thing. So um, you got to find that balance and it's tough. I know as a coach probably, but you got to remember to let the guys not forget to play our game and not overemphasize stopping their game. As a player on the floor and uh, let's say you've walked through their, their top couple of sets or, or whatever it is. How is it in real time when a coach is kind of yelling from the sideline, the name of a set that's coming and then you try to transfer into your brain like, Oh, I remember that's a yeah. reverse, whatever to a pin down yeah, yeah. one. Does that help? Or is there a, a way that's maybe better to relay information quickly to players from the, the bench to the floor? It helps for sure because you don't, you're thinking about a lot in the game, right? In the moment, you got a lot on your mind. Most fans don't know just how much is going on on the court. There's a lot going on. You know, yeah. there's 10 huge bodies on not a huge portion of real estate, right? So you're, you're trying to find little advantages as easy as possible. So if you're mentally thinking too much, you know, a guy's getting behind you or whatever. So I think having an assistant coach or two assistant coaches that are so well prepared, right? Doing the overtime to know a lot of these sets, you know, for example, here, especially, and everywhere I've played, a big thing for me is always, you know, during a dead ball or during a free throw, you're listening to the other team. And if you can hear pick that call up and you're yelling over to your coach, two side, two side, what's two side? You know, you kind of remember what two side was during walkthrough, but you know, you want to hear the quick cross screen for the three, you know, post up or, you know, a hammer screen for the four, you know, watch out, watch out. You remember we're switching. So like little something tiny, just remember, okay, the, the main action is they're finishing on a hammer screen in the corner. So you kind of have that in your mind. You're prepping for that while you're getting down the court. Uh, so those little things, having assistants that help you in that regard, it's huge for the players because we're not always going to remember everything. Um, we're trying to stop the guy in front of us. So um, like you asked, like those little things as a player helps a lot. And having guys on the bench that kind of can remember too helps too. You know, that's, it goes top to bottom, just the communication yeah. and everyone being on the same page. Sam, especially in Europe, Offenses will do a lot of masking action. So when you are scouting, is it, are the coaches just giving you, like you said, whether it's, it's going to end in a hammer and we're going to switch it? Is, mm-hmm. Are you going through maybe the other kind of masks? Uh, I mean, how do you go about approaching that and coaches? Yeah, so uh, like you said, it's, sometimes it's a lot of fluff to get into the main action. So, for example, that could be like, this screener roll is fake. They'll tell us that, okay, this first, the four is going to come up, set a screen for the one. Let's not switch that because they want to get the four, you know, the four switched on to the one to get into the real action. So he's going to slip this a lot. So don't worry about this. So you're kind of remembering that. So now I'm thinking, okay, if I'm guarding the four, oh yeah, I remember he, when he comes up to the wing, he's not setting this. He's just going to the corner. Um, so little things like that are, are huge in Europe, just kind of, yeah, to break you out of your, you know, kind of box defense that you want to be in. So just remembering those things and no unnecessary switching or don't, you know, point switch for no reason, whatever. Um, so just kind of those little things, uh, the first like six seconds of the shot clock, just staying locked in and being like, okay, let's wait for this, you know, the real set to get in. And then, then you see what happens. So yeah, little things like that. Um, they're good over here, you know, as, as staff too, like getting you ready for that and um, knowing that, you know, sometimes the first four or five seconds is, is fluff. So just, you know, stay locked in and, and mm. stay with your guy. Sam, timeouts as a player. So going back to the coaches trying to stuff information into players mm-hmm. in a short amount of time, sometimes, you know, in a timeout coach, feel like you'll say something or you call play or, Hey, we make an adjustment and then players go back out on the floor and it's like, they didn't retain anything that you just said yeah. in the timeout. What helps you as a player in a timeout, retain what's being said and then transfer it out on the floor? Yeah. Well, for me personally, I like, even if we just went on a big run, right, and they just called the timeout, I don't like getting in the huddle and being just like, ah. Like, a lot of times I'm like, shut up. Like, please, shut up. The other four guys I'm on the court with, that's who I want to talk to in that moment, right? So, um, you know, yo, like, 
you know, call that out quick, please uh, call that, call that a little quicker. Or, Hey, when you're getting like hedged like that, do you want me to raise it? You know, something small, you know, if I see a guy struggling, you know, how do you want me to do this? Da, 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 da. I don't want my other teammates to be like, guys, guys, we gotta do this. Gotta do this. It's like, <laughs> like I yeah. can only think about so much. Right. So, yeah. you know, just kind of having some order, have these, the five guys that you have on the court, you know, together kind of communicating and then one coach talking. And that's the big thing. Like, one guy talking at once, even if it's a player, as a coach, you don't want your players cutting you off when you're talking. But, you know, if it's your leader or whatever, your, your point guard, and he has, really has something to say or, you know, your center is struggling on a certain action. If he needs to get it out, I feel like as a, if I were a coach, I would let him once in a while cut me off. Like, I need, I need help on this. Like, just so there's one person talking, you know, yeah. and um, you know, taking the back seat sometimes. Because when there's four people talking, it's impossible for everyone to like retain everything. So you know, just kind of having some order, letting the guys communicate for a couple seconds. Everyone get everything out. Cool. All right. This is what we're getting into. You know, first time down, let's run this or this ATO. You draw something up, but not flooding them with too much info, right? You know, maybe one key adjustment or one focus on, you know, threes and fours. I need you to crash the glass a little more and we can get out and transition. Just little things. You don't need to throw the kitchen sink at them in a timeout because there's usually 60 seconds. Sam, with ATOs, are they usually stuff you guys have worked on in practice or will a coach maybe draw up something that you guys just have never done? Most coaches have like, you know, you know, on the plane, on the bus, whatever. A lot of times they're just either on an iPad or on a just scribbling stuff, right? Um, so they have a whole five, six pages of ATOs that they can go to or situationally, especially in the NBA. A lot of times it'll be like, all right, you know, they have a page or two for, you know, under 10 seconds, we're under the rim, you know, what's, what's a play that's worked in the past, you know? So that's where you see those coaches kind of talking during a timeout. If you want to get to this, get to this, whatever. But um, yeah, a lot of times coaches will draw stuff up on the fly. Obviously stuff that is retained knowledge, you know, stuff that they've ran before in their past. Yeah. So that's when the drawing up really helps because, you know, if you don't need to draw up plays that you've ran all day, you know? So um, yeah, especially here, you know, our coach has done a great job this year. Sometimes he'll draw a play and go, wow. That was pretty impressive. Uh, last <laughs> night he drew one up. You know, we were down three. Uh, we missed a shot on it, but he he drew up a great set, and we had never ran it, and I was impressed. Just long story short, I came – you know, we had the ball on the side. I came off a screen, got it caught at the top, and fake – or dribbled it towards our point guard, who inbounded it to me, faked it, and it got downhill, and we had a hammer action on the other side for mm -hmm. Kyle Wilcher going to the corner, and I hit him. We missed the shot, but – like when I saw it open, I was like, oh, this is a great play. <laughs> so, um, that's a huge part of coaching, like situationally being calm and knowing what to draw up. Um, that's a skill and it's tough. I coached in a couple camps with some NBA coaches, kind of like seminars types things. And they gave me a clipboard one time and they're like, dress up up. I'm like, there's 12 seconds left. He's like, yeah, dress up up. And I blanked. I didn't know what to draw. So um, on the spot, it's tough. So I got, I got some love for coaches that can do that well. <laughs> <laughs> that's good you know since we have you here and we want to hear your player perspective and i don't want to get you in trouble and don't name names but what are some things that coaches do maybe in a let's say in a practice like a drill that you just feel has really no use or that maybe is overemphasized if any that's a good one I, I, that's a great question um for me i think i think for training camp and you know, so, you know, if there's a long break, I, I understand long practices. I, I really do. But I don't think at every level. So like high school, especially high school and college, how long are you going to keep those guys engaged? Right. So, you know, having the guys in there two and a half hours, I mean, what are you getting out of them after 100 minutes? Right. So as a player, I like getting a lot out in an efficient amount of time. You know, my workouts for myself, you know, in the summers are 45 minutes to an hour and I'm getting a lot in getting game stuff in um, obviously like early in the year, stuff like a shell or stuff like, you know, hard hedge drills, whatever, those are important, but there's times during the season where it's like, are we just doing this to do it? Or are we doing this to, you know, get something out of it? So I, I'm a big proponent in going live, but you don't need, an hour and a half of going live, but, you know, let's get a good five on five for 20, 25 minutes of, you know, six possessions at a time, 
blow the whistle. Let's, let's clean this up, da, 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 get a drink. Let's go back to it. You know, eight possessions, whatever. But when you keep, especially like college guys in, you know, you see them during film, you know, it, sometimes guys are nodding off. It's how it gets during practice. You know, you see if open gym goes too long. That's when they always say this is when injuries happen. You know, like mm-hmm. you want to keep your guys fresh, but you guys want to keep your guys locked in. And the mental aspect is so important. So I don't know if there's necessarily a drill per se that it's like this doesn't do anything because everything does something. But I think it's the time and how efficient can you be with that time. And I've gotten the most out of, you know, 40-minute practices or an hour practice. So we like to to transfer over to our overrated or underrated segment. So Sam, we'll, we'll give you a basketball ish topic and you can tell us briefly overrated or underrated and maybe why, and we can, uh, and we'll kind of move through it from there. So we'll just start with a fun one for you. Okay. So overrated or underrated the team private jet experience underrated (laughs) (laughs) sounds nice but it's nicer (laughs) it's it's nicer than it sounds especially if you have your own plane like so the rockets like had their own plane so you could like leave things on the plane you know like we had like stewardesses that the same stewardesses every time so like they knew what i liked you know after a game after a win they always had a whiskey and ginger ale for me in my seat and like my favorite candy like after a win there's nothing better than that. So that, was, that, was, that, that experience is pretty cool. It's like, first time you see it, you're like, whoa. So yeah, that, I, wish, I wish I still had that. After a loss, was it a double whiskey and ginger ale? <laughs> no, after a loss, was, no, after a loss, it was usually they had a, they knew I wouldn't like, if I played bad, but not every loss, you're, you're not mad at every loss, but most losses, yeah. it would just be like two pillows and a big blanket. And they knew I was going to sleep. <laughs> Sam, I, I can imagine, and obviously not divulging any information, I can imagine it's a fun place to be after a big win and you maybe have a pretty long flight somewhere and, and everybody's hanging out. Uh, what's it like on that private plane after a tough loss or there's some division in the locker room or whatever it is? Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, like some division, because think about it, it's 82 games. So there's going to be times where you're, you don't even know why, but so-and-so is grinding your gears because you've been with him so much. You know what I mean? We see each other more than you see your family, your wives, your girlfriends, whatever. Um, so t- sometimes you're going to rub each other the wrong way. So that's why sometimes after, like, especially like a, a long like 10-day road trip, the, the ride home will be pretty quiet just because guys are wiped. And, you know, four games or five games and nine days or whatever. Um, but after like a big win, vibes are good. Usually, usually there's a you know music going and a bunch of card games going or guys you know have their iPads out making fun of each other for certain plays or whatever. But most of the time, guys are pretty you know even keel about it. You know, you get out what you need to get out in the locker room or yeah. on the bus to the airport. And once you're on the plane, everyone has their kind of their thing they do. So you know whether it's just you know regular conversation that you have with your seatmate usually, or there's always a card table, so that's always going. So. Um, the good teams are the ones that kind of stay, you know, win or loss. Every flight's the same. Um, you know, that, that's that's kind that's important to keep that continuity. So usually the guys, the teams of good leaders are the ones that uh, that that keep keep that vibe uh, in, in the right space. I don't want to get off off topic too much, but you mentioned it twice now. How do you view player confrontation? Like, is it how much of it is necessary, and how much of it is, or when does it become toxic? Maybe. It becomes toxic when it's when it's immature. It becomes toxic when it's not man to man, right? So when it when it's when it's grumbling behind each other's back, or when it's grumbling about a coach over and over. This and you, you know, as a guy, for me, like I'm a second unit guy. You know, I'm doing my best to you know stay involved in everything. And Sometimes it sucks like hearing like, okay, he's complaining about the same thing over and over and over. Like, just go talk to the guy. You know what I mean? Like, or like you're mad at, you know, so-and-so for the way, for not seeing you this, you know, keep telling me, just stop saying it's me. Go talk to him. Like, it's like, you know, you can only be like, yeah, I hear you, man. Like so, so much, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the good teams, again, like the good teams are the ones that can say it to each other, you know, and, and, but the big thing is don't go about it in an immature way. So like, 
if if a guy misses me in the corner for a three, don't yell at him on the court in front of everyone. All right. Don't scream at him across the court, you know, in the huddle during that time where you're chilling before the coaches come. Hey, man, um, you know, see me on that swing the next time. It, it, just just so you know, I'm, I'm there. Um, they're Xing wrong. I'm there. OK, got you. That you'll get you'll get. All right. Cool, man. You get that every time. But if I'm like, throw the ball. You know, what is that going to do? Because then the guy feels like you're coming at him. So confrontation in a mature way goes a long way for building a good team with chemistry. Um, But when it goes about behind each other's backs or throwing your arms up on TV, whatever, that's when it gets bad. So there's healthy confrontations that are needed. And uh, when you figure that out, things, things go well. Pat, sorry, I had a follow-up too. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll move faster, Sam, but you're just giving such good answers. It's like, I want to keep diving in. But also in, in relation to the, um, sorry, to the travel, how much does the travel at the NBA level, they always talk about back-to-backs and guys needing rest. I mean, how much does that really affect your sleep and your your habits and your body throughout the course of the season? It's tough. It's, it really is. Um, you know, thankfully I was only like a, you know, 10 to 20 minute guy. So like when I came in, my energy was kind of the same because I knew I could go hard the whole time. Right. Um, you know, at most I was playing, if I'm playing well, I'm playing 20 to 25 minutes, maybe 28 on a long night when a guy needs a break, but the low end I'm playing 10, 12 minutes. So I'm going hard when I'm out there, but a guy that like a Bradley Beal or a James Harden or LeBron, like guys that have to be out there for 38 to 42 minutes is like, that's tough. You know, they're, they're going every night out there trying to be Ironman and try to score in 25, 30 points and having the kitchen sink defensively throwing at them and then going on a plane and landing at 3.30 in the morning in Minneapolis, getting the hotel and having a team meeting at 12 the next morning. It's like, yeah, it's a lot. And that's another thing that fans don't see. You know, it's, it's a grind flying and landing at weird hours and right sleeping when you can and taking naps when you can. But um, I'm still doing it here. Last night, we got, I got to my apartment at 4.30 in the morning, uh, came back on a road trip, and then we leave in two days uh, at 6 a.m. Because of COVID, the flights are horrible now. So you're still dealing with it, and you just got to find ways to sleep when you can. That's what I was told when I was young, and um, it, it's worked for me so far. But, yeah, that travel is probably the toughest part in terms of, you know, readiness. Right. Thanks. All right, Pat. <laughs> All right. I guess we're playing over under still. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My overrated, underrated, Sam, three on three. Uh, overrated. It's overrated in terms of taking a lot of stock in it. So, like, you're missing two defenders. So, it's hard to, like, you know, it's three on three without pick and rolls is better because it's impossible to stop pick and rolls with just three guys, really. So, to keep guys in shape, sure, I get it. That, I, I've done it. I've had to be in a three-on-three, four-on-fours before in my career. But you don't get a ton out of it. I, I would say I, I like it more if it's no pick-and-rolls, dribble limit. If you're really taking stock in it and being like, oh, we played good in three-on-three, it's like it's three-on-three. There's space. You're shooting step-backs, stuff you're not doing really in games. So I'm bigger on one-on-one, to be honest, because, you know, not even offensively. Defensively, it helps you so much. And, you know, just to be ready when you get out there, when you're on an island, if you get switched on someone, you can fall back on some of the stuff you work on. Overrated, underrated. I know this will be near and dear to you, but overrated, underrated, the swing offense. (sighs) Um, Underrated as an entry set. Okay. Overrated as the, like, Twitter hype it gets. Okay. <laughs> because it's not really used. It was rated properly when Bo Ryan teams were winning national championships running exclusively that. I'll say that. You know what sure. I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It, des- it got the love it deserved. But, like, when you watch a game and you always hear them say, oh, they're running the classic swing. Like, we didn't run the swing. We ran the swing twice a game. And usually it would be just kind of like a flex action to get into something. And that was the swing there. And – but then we'd break it off because you have the talent to break things off. Um, you know, the Platteville teams, the early Wisconsin teams didn't have, they didn't have a Naismith. They didn't have, you know, first round picks. They didn't have the guards they have today. You know, they had guys that needed to run structure to score easy baskets. Right. right? So yeah. 
Um, it was rated properly with, with the right guys. It's rated properly with the wrong guys and overhyping it. Then it's overrated. So when you were with Wisconsin, you guys were obviously, you know, national championship level teams. It sounded like you guys were just running more of a mix of it rather than the pure, you know, when, when coaches watch a swing offense video, the pure yeah. version of it. Yeah. I, I think if, if you <laughs> made a swing offense video of my teams, it would be, it would be like a blooper reel. Like it was, <laughs> it, they, they wanted us to run the swing one practice. Cause we lost, um, we lost to somebody my junior year. We lost to Maryland down the road. And, um, we had Michigan state coming up and that's always a tough game. And, uh, co- coach wanted us, he was, he was upset with the way we played our offense because we were playing too much ice or whatever. So we ran a practice of exclusively swing and we were getting cooked by the scout team. We couldn't get a basket. We couldn't run. And finally Frank just throws the ball down. He goes, what the hell are we doing? And coach looks at him like bewildered. He goes, Frank goes, when have we ever run this? It doesn't work. Look at us. We can't run it. We're not, we're not. It was something he said something like, he said something along the lines of like, we're not like disciplined enough to run it. Just let, let us do what works. We were like yeah. 30 and three, like at the time. So it was like, and then coach kind of like chuckled. And I think he was like, he's kind of right. And <laughs> we went back to our freelance ways. And that's kind of, if you watch those teams, we were very much freelance with structure, but we were very much just like, let's read this. Let's read this. Let's read this. And we have some smart guys. I had some smart teammates and they were, uh, really good at reading what I was reading and vice versa. So uh, yeah. it, that's what works so well. Okay. All right, Sam, my next one, overrated, underrated, um, throwing your team out of practice. <laughs> uh, that's overrated. It does nothing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, as a player, do you f- go back to the locker room and find it more funny that you just got yeah. thrown out of practice? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> and we'll go play video games. <laughs> like, like, all right. like, yeah, getting thrown out of practice. It may, maybe at first you're like, no, coach, no, no, no. But if he's like very adamant about like stopping practice, you're like, you want to give up? Like, okay, we're not trying no. to screw up. <laughs> so. Is there some sort of tactic, though, that can shake your guys' tree as players that does work? Maybe it's not throwing you out of practice, but getting you on the line to run or, or uh, doing a drill you hate or something that drives the message home better. Honestly, I just think being honest, um, yeah. you know, like stopping practice and you don't have to pump the ball and then do a speech. Honestly, I think trying to get on the same wavelength as your team, yeah. trying to get in their mindset and us getting the coach's mindset. You know, as a coach, if you just yell, 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 you just tune that out. But Or just be like, just stop and be like, what's up? You know, like yeah. guys like being talked to like humans, not, you know, summoned. For, for sure. <laughs> We're good. Sam, overrated or underrated, five on O in practice? Um, honestly, I think underrated. I don't think an hour of five on O is good. But for me, like, I, I consider myself a pretty smart guy. And there are times where I blank on sets and, or if it's something that we haven't called in a month and like just getting a refresher, I think that's important. Especially like over here is different because I'm, you know, a starter and I'm on the court. So I'm getting the reps yeah. all the time. So I'm remembering it. But in the NBA, it was important for me because it's like, oh, I haven't run that set in a while. Like, you know, second unit, we haven't run that in a while. You know, we've been running this or we've been running this. So it's good to like, just get, you know, 15 minutes, even in a walkthrough of like, all right, second unit, run, run this. And like being like, okay. And, and screwing up or asking a question and being like, when do I make that cut? Or like, you know, like, when do you want me to, like, where do you want me to set this? So I think that's important for a guy like me, because I've learned better when I'm actually doing it. And I, you know, you can hand me a pamphlet that shows where I'm supposed to be. And I'm not going to retain that as well. So like, I need to be out there, you know, I need to, you know, even, even just jogging, I don't need to be sprinting, but like jogging my spot and then like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so for some guys, I think it's very underrated. And for me, it's, it's important. Okay. All right, Sam, my last one for you. Overrated, underrated. When the coach says, I can't score for you guys, or refers to him being able to play, you know, every coach says like, I, I could rebound better than you. Overrated or something thing like ever. That. Almost <laughs> overrated. Also, one thing I is super overrated to me is when a coach like in practice, you know, you're doing shooting drills or whatever. And they're like, 
make shots, guys. <laughs> and like, I always, like, I still do it. I'll be like, yeah, because we're trying to miss. Like, <laughs> of course, we're doing a shooting drill. Of course, we're trying to make the shots, you know? And like, come on, guys, let's, let's, hit, let's hit some shots. It's like, we're trying. So it's like, um, obviously, I know it's just kind of your way to encourage. So come on, let's pick it up. Like, let's go. But like, sometimes, like, if you take it in the literal sense, you're like, duh. Like, <laughs> like um, yeah, or just always throwing back to like, yeah, I was a player, da, 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 da. like, yeah, like we get it, but like we're out here now, we're trying our best. Yep. Sometimes guys need like a reminder, but most of the time, your guys are doing what they can. Sam, you're off the overrated, underrated hot seat. You were, <laughs> you were really good. Thank you for Thanks, for uh, doing that. So, as we we kind of round out the the podcast here, um, I, I just go back, man. This has been really fun. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all this. Um, of course. Yeah. Last question for you. You've been on a lot of great teams at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you can share or that you've learned over your career thus far about being a good teammate? The guys are the best teammates on the teams you've been on. What do they do? You know, why are they so good? And, you know, the effect I guess it has on the rest of the program. Yeah. Good teammate comes in a lot of forms, right? You know, there's, and, and I think every team needs like, one of each. So I think like good teammates don't always need to be the most vocal. I think they need to lead by example. Some of my best teammates are the one are ones that I were like best friends with. They were ones that, you know, they would, I would see them putting like their best foot forward in terms of, you know, not always just being early, but like efficiently doing the work, uh, communicating with the staff, communicating with, players um and then being able to get along with everybody that's like a big thing is you don't want to be best friends with like three people and then like not talk to like four people right like the ones that like are the best teammates are the ones that like everyone feels confident like talking to or asking or you know being able to go to an approach but you know you also have to learn yourself how to fit in and you know be able to connect with people uh, everyone's different everyone comes from different creeds and faiths and backgrounds it's super important to just be able to be someone that people are okay with being themselves around. And, you know, that takes a, some maturity to do, but, you know, I like to think I did my best at that. The good teams are the ones that have guys that are willing to sacrifice a lot. And, um, don't get too long winded, but especially, I know if there's a lot of like high school or college coaches listening, you know, it starts from the top and building that trust within a team and you know if as a coach you don't connect with your players they're going to struggle connecting with each other so I, I think that's that's a big thing and those teams that everyone can talk to each other from top to bottom is is are the teams that are successful and if they're not they're they're still fighting for each other going back to the beginning the blog post we talked about that you wrote about coming over to europe and being a player what have you learned personally the last couple of years from that experience in the sense of like resilience and moving forward and about yourself? Yeah, well, it, it, I, I've matured so much. Um, I have things that were really important to me back home are not at all anymore. You know, things that like would take a lot of my thought and time out of my day, like, like the things that like mean the most to you are the things that, you know, I, I was in Russia and now Turkey. So like talk to your family, you talk to like your parents, talk to my wife and, you know, try to see my nieces and nephews and then I do my job and then like, you know, create some bonds with these teammates here and guys that have played with in the past, but like not getting like caught up in stuff online or stuff on, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, just stupid stuff that, you know, just little tiny things that back home seem like they can consume you. And over here you really figure out what's important who's important. And then I think I have gotten better at just like being where I am and, and being present. And I, one big thing I kind of live by is be where your feet are. Like your, your feet can be somewhere, but your mind can be somewhere else. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, if my feet are in Turkey and my mind is in the NBA and then I'm not going to be good here, I'm not going to do my job and get to where I want to be. So like, mentally and physically I have to be in the same space. That's been like super big for me and super important and it's helped me grow up.
please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.